Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that is ready for the racist war on drugs to be over. Today we have Laura, Zoe, and Walida. And today we're talking about how weed legalization and how weed criminalization, too, affects the racist hierarchies that we have in place across the United States. Um, So we wanted to start this episode by acknowledging that the partner episode that is coming out tomorrow, 420, for our Patreon supporters, is a privileged thing. Um, We know that being able to do a 420 episode is a privilege that we are afforded. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things on this episode, and I think that tomorrow's episode for our Patreon subscribers is going to be really silly and may or may not start with me, uh, thinking that I'm being hacked and needing to be talked down by Walita. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think that you're going to really love that for different reasons than we hope you enjoy this episode too. Yeah, I also just wanted to start off by saying, um, "Fuck Bill Clinton." Yes, uh, for a lot of for a All lot right. of things, but specifically on this episode uh, for the 1994 Crime Act, um, which probably a lot of people have heard of. Yeah, it's really fucking stupid. But if you don't know what the bill included, um, one of the things was a three strike like rule for felonies. So it basically implemented like a three strike system that would lead to, um, a mandatory life sentence. Um, it also funded the state to hire a hundred thousand new police officers. Um, it gave $9.7 billion in funding for prison and expansion of death penalty eligible offenses and dedicated $6.1 billion to quote-unquote prevention programs, which were designed by a lot of police officers. So they were, in theory, supposed to be, um, like, rehabilitated, but they ended up being, obviously, punitive because they were designed by cops. Right. Um, and the bill was, it is not what, like, started or caused mass incarceration. That was already, like, well on its way, but it is something that definitely... Um, you know, fed into that and was instrumental in speeding that up. Um, It passed very easily with bipartisan support through the House and the Senate, because if there's one thing Democrats and Republicans can agree on, it's a carceral state. Um, Bill Clinton has since recognized that that bill was a mistake, but little too little too late, buddy. Yeah, I mean, there's any of those like speeches where he's kind of like screaming screaming into the audience an apology and like getting worked up about it. I'm just kind of like, oh man, I don't know. I just feel like the whole Clinton era and even the stuff with like Chelsea Clinton now, there's a whole like Clinton fuck like situation there. <laughs> there is a Clinton fuck Clinton, situation. Bill, Bill Clinton was very popular when he was president. Oh yeah. Americans overwhelmingly loved him. Um, his, uh, Hillary was extremely hated by conservatives, especially conservative men, but beloved by liberals, especially liberal women. Mm. Um, and Chelsea was just a little girl who was being called super nasty names by the then Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. That's what I remember of the Clinton presidency, that everybody was happy. Everyone had money. There was jobs galore. We had a surplus and the Internet became a thing. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, Madeleine Albright uh, started bombing Bosnia, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, if we're gonna, if we are going to shut out, shout out a fuck you to Bill Clinton, I say, let's just take it, take it back to, to a big fuck you to Richard Nixon, um, who really uh, started the war on drugs um and just say no baby just say no came with reagan which was yeah. after oh yeah nancy my girl nancy yeah not my girl not my not girl nancy well if y'all recall if any of you were at our chicago live show you may recall that i became nancy reagan um i do remember that that yeah. was hilarious <laughs> um and i just wanted everyone to say no um to drugs be, you know, for for money in the government and corporations' pockets reasons. Um, okay, but I totally got mixed up between which one, which white male president who, uh, you know, started everything you were referring to. Yeah, I think. Go on. Like it was essentially it. It's hard not to read the situation as a direct um, backlash to the civil rights movement. Um, and it's hard not to see it as this, um, okay, well, you have these, these new rights We're we're paying attention to you. Um, and, but we just want to keep drugs off of our streets. So we're going to, we're going to, um, wage war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And so of course, like the, the dawn of mass incarceration, you know, of course people were incarcerated before then, you know, primarily, african-american however the we see this like massive um rapidization of prison growth in um, nixon's era and then of course it just like blows up during reagan is sustained during george w bush and then you know we get (laughs) bill clinton who essentially was the republican party he just was, you know, he was he was a third way Democrat. He was he was an outgrowth of of that new type of liberal that was actually just more conservative than previously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just the Democratic, but they just moved to the right. Yeah. Yeah. So just fuck the long lineage of white men in the presidency, uh, just ramping up mass incarceration. And I actually don't know what the statistics are on like whether that growth uh, continued to increase under Obama or not. So I guess I shouldn't say only white men, but I don't I don't have those numbers in front of me. Yeah, I also just want to say, I mean, of course, the war on drugs has a lot to do with um, black people in America, but it also goes hand in hand a lot with immigration. Yes. um, And especially in kind of the more recent years of immigration talk with um, obviously the fucking wall, but I don't really even want to talk about that. But like just blaming the, you know, presence of drugs and like drugs being brought in by you know, people trying to enter the U.S. Right. It, it's like totally politicized in that way. And yeah. also, I we can go back to saying fuck you to Bill Clinton because I would say that NAFTA um, or the North American Free Trade Agreement was is one of the main reasons why um, weed production in Mexico also, like 
the drug cartels in Mexico grew after NAFTA because small farmers and farming operations throughout Mexico uh, were completely shut down due to overcompetition from the free trade border agreement stuff that was going on. And the United States was exporting um, crops to Mexico and it was cheaper for Mexicans to buy American goods rather than grow their own. And so like there are these laws that we make in the United States that have these effects not only on uh, how much weed or other drugs are accessible, who's growing them, and then how that politicizes our borders and not only what the presence of larger drug cartels do to people in those areas and but what it creates in terms of this narrative that then the United States can be like, see this problem we created, but we're going to blame you for it anyways. That's like our our trademark, I feel like, though. (laughs) It's just saying. Yeah, definitely. Oh, God. Um, sorry, I totally just went on like a rant about NAFTA. No, 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 that was great. That was great. I wanted to uh, jump in and quickly say it was not a coincidence that Nixon, um, the Nixon administration, the Republican Party swung so hard to the right after, let's see what happened in the 60s, in the 60s. Oh, that's right. It was the Civil Rights Act. Um, right. And prior to that, decades of civil rights activism. Um, and now that suddenly Jim Crow, the Jim Crow era was ending and the forced second-class uh, citizenhood of Black people in America was uh, might have started to come to an end. They quickly ramped up this war on drugs, and it, just as you said, skyrocketed in the 80s, skyrocketed in the 90s, uh, skyrocketed in the early 2000s. I mean, it was almost like a 90-degree angle up. And then it sort of level, leveled off around 2006-2007. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's not a coincidence that that's when it started. For fucking real. So I had some questions that I, so to our listeners, this is not something that we, we are pretty sure that we are not close to being experts on this. We do not, um, you know, attempt to be experts. I would hope that all y'all are reading Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, um, as well as, um, push out or other books that talk about how this is related to the school to prison pipeline. Um, but also watch movies like 13th, um, and I'm sure countless others. Um, but I do have some questions that I thought like for me are more, I'm, I was thinking of framing them in the way that like thinking about the potential future of this and what that would mean for our country. Um, and so, I guess that sounds really like a weird way to put it, but I have um, thoughts like, why does decriminalization need to go hand in hand with legalization of weed? Um, A lot of policy, like where weed is decriminalized and or legalized, um, is purposely written to have loopholes that still allow for racist and classist interpretations um, of like who it's actually legal for. And I did mention this a little bit on the Patreon 420 episode, but also uh, the point of the episode is that I was really stoned. So I'm going to say it again now. Yes. <laughs> um, so my aunt, who lives um, in New York in Harlem, has been working in harm reduction for drug users for a very long time, like a, a couple decades, a few decades. And um, 
Right now, she works on like a committee that is drafting policy recommendations for the state of New York. So they will send like, they're basically making a blueprint of like, these are the best policy ideas um, in order for it not to be discriminatory. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the state's not going to listen to them, but they're trying to recommend like best possible policy. Um, And so in that, and she was talking to me because I, used to live in DC. And when I was living there was when it was legalized there. And I had a medical card and all that stuff. But one thing about DC is so much of the land there is federal. Mm -hmm. And the laws in DC, well, one, of course, like it's not legal on federal property, but it's legal on like DC um, public uh, state property. It's not a state. Well, you know, (laughs) the 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 district. Yeah, the district property, the district Um, property. (laughs) But so what is included in federal property is um, public housing and like low income housing. So it's still and the rules in D.C. are that you can have it on your property, like in your home, if you're um, like registered with it, at least medicinally. So it means that if people live in public housing or low income housing, they are not allowed to have it still. Um, And it's not allowed in like any shelters or anything like that. So that's like a really big issue in those um, policies and i can speak the most to dc is just because i lived there but it's similar everywhere that it's legal there seems to be like there there was some other policy i was reading about in california a while ago where they were like okay well we're gonna do a a form of reparations to the people Mm -hmm. that have been for incarcerated for for possession or use or whatever um and they're going to be funneled into this program where like you can actually now get into the legal weed industry and have your own business or like work in the field or whatever but it's like you know there's a some private equity firm that gets the contract out to like build all these businesses and do all this stuff so it's like it's not really like reparations it's not really like a redistributive policy for people who were incarcerated under this extremely racist and unjust law but it was kind of like a you know like all government contracting is it was really just a way for some private equity firm or some rich person somewhere to make more money off the government while pretending to like cure a social ill. And there's like always that problem, right? And unless we have like a truly democratized economy and universal healthcare and complete decriminalization of all this drug use, then all of these, you know, programs that are coming out with reparations really have to be looked at under a microscope and like, okay, who is funding it? How is this going to work? Who's going to be receiving it? What's the accountability? Like, there's just so many layers to restributive and restorative justice in while we still live like under a capitalist oligarchy. Yeah, I actually my next question was about reparations. Um, and like for me, the question is, like, how can we funnel, funnel the funds from weed legalization into communities that have been most affected by its criminalization? Um, and essentially that question also is like trending towards like, how can this begin to heal black communities? Um, and of course, like, I don't have the answer to that, but I, I think, I do think that this is an important piece of this, right? Is if like we are to take seriously how, how many communities have been specifically targeted and, been torn apart by these sorts of criminalizations, um, which of course have their roots in material conditions, you know, like, 
Yeah, there's a lot to say on that, right? But I think I think that's pretty intuitive. But I think we know how much legalized weed is making in the states that it is legal um, to either whether in tax revenue or otherwise. And I think that when we're thinking about that increased um, state funding, um, I do think that we need to make sure that shit isn't going into like more state troopers or more like hyper militarization of our communities because I I just I don't know. I guess I don't know like how we can ensure this, but I it feels like unbelievably crucial. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I also feel like I don't have a good answer of like how to do that. Yeah. Um and like maybe I'm having a particularly like nihilistic day, but I'm just like we just ha- it's just like so hard we have no control over like how that money would be used um obviously ideally like used for like schools that don't have enough funding which usually are in like communities of color and um you know used for like rehabilitation programs uh for people that do have uh you know need like drug rehab if that's like you know what they want what's best for them but like we just have such a stigmatized, such a like such a societal stigma around drugs that even like it's just really hard to get actually like good harm reduction for people. Yeah. Well, um, among the things like the black community itself asks for, like very specifically, at least here in Chicago and in other places, is like you know obviously all records expunged, no more arrests yes. for marijuana use. Yeah. Everybody let out of prison, uh, community accountability for the police, right? Like here in Chicago, they're fighting for, um, a community police kind of, uh, community police accountability. I got that wrong. Chicago police accountability. Anyway, it's a, yes. like, <laughs> it's like a local, accountability. yes, it's a local a council basically made of, made up of like people in the community to oversee police action. So they are in charge of disciplining the cops, right? So they have some democratic oversight on the cops. Um, obviously more money for everything across the board, um, banning the box, like on applications, stop asking people if they have, uh, you know, incarceration background, it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. And someone's trying to get a job. Like, you know, there's a laundry list of things that, that are go part and parcel to a restorative justice plan. Several of the people running for president right now have like many, like sort of flushed out ideas on how they would go about this. It's not an impossible thing to do. It's really just the will. There's like the political will to do this, I think is getting stronger and stronger. Um, Finally, like people are starting to pay attention to this. People at the national and federal levels are starting to talk about it and pay attention to it. Reparations, the fact that reparations is like a real ongoing conversation now, even in mainstream media, is fantastic. Yeah. Like so long overdue. And I'm like, we'll figure it out. You know, we'll figure out a way to do it and do it right, hopefully. Um, But it's just so amazing. Like just in my lifetime, the the difference of what people are talking about now than what they were talking about when Bill Clinton, you know, signed that crime bill and everybody was like, all right, finally a liberal doing crime. It's going to be compassionate and fair or whatever they were thinking. Yeah, it's um, totally intolerable. And also like thinking about, I don't even know what the percentage is of people in our prison system that are there for drug offenses, but I have to imagine it's like a pretty hefty percentage. Yeah. Um, Wait, I'm going to look it up. Keep talking. I'll I'll be back. Yes. Um, I also think like 
when we think about laws that were put in place around um, mandatory minimum sentencing, um, you know, that used to not be a thing. Judges could make the call given context on a, a certain crime that's committed. And the mandatory minimum sentencing laws um, changed that. So no matter what, if someone was taken in for possession of a certain amount or whatever, they had specific minimums that were in place. Um, and again, the context around those things gets completely tossed out of the window. Um, and those sorts of things, there's, I just, I think that there are so many layers when it comes to the carceral state, like, and of course, now we know how much of that is wrapped up in private corporations. And I think what people aren't super aware of is like, even though privatized prisons are only a, a, a portion of our prison system, you know, a, it's constantly growing. Even in our public prisons, there are partnerships with cor corporations like for, um, the bail bond companies, like those companies are making profit off of bail. Um, they're the food companies that are serving the prisons um, and are often filled with maggots and whatever. Um, ah! There's, yeah, it's disgusting. Um, the, the phone companies that are used for, like are privatized within prison systems. Um, and, you know, there's a, tons of other pieces there. Uh, and I think that, like, there's just so many things on our country <laughs> that rely on this stream of revenue, right? On this stream of profit. And that po profit has wielded so much power um, since mass incarceration has blown up. And that's why I think these issues of justice... Um, are become so complicated because it's not there are so many layers to like begin to try to like push back and fold back um yeah okay i'm back with some statistics tell me um so i have a few different searches here so first um what percentage of prisoners are drug offenders 15 percent of state prisoners at the end of the year of 2015 had been convicted of a drug offense um, as their most serious offense. In comparison, 47% of federal prisoners serving time in September of 2016 were convicted of a drug offense. No. So, what? Yeah. So almost, drug charges. Almost half oh of God. federal prisoners. That's um, insane. That's yeah. And then shit. some more insane statistics. Yes. Hit um, us with it. So this is about the percentage of black people in prison. Um, so there's a 52% chance that a low-income black man has been behind bars. Um, and black people make up nearly 40% of America's incarcerated population and are more than five times as likely as um, white people to uh, be behind bars. And 57, as of 2014... 57% of incarcerated men and 72% of incarcerated women had an income below um, 22500 an annual mm -hmm. income, before they were um, locked away. So, right. 
Yeah. And that's also, I mean, obviously this is known, but just looking at those statistics for people of color, like black people are 13% of the U S population. Um, but then like that much more likely to go to prison. 2,306 people out of every 100,000 um, that are black people go to prison versus 450 out of 100,000 white people. Whoa. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not that saying, good at Well, like, this isn't surprising. <laughs> like, I fucking know this, but it's just like, yeah. hearing the numbers is there, always its own thing. There's six times more likely. Yeah. Did right. I do that much? Did I do the math uh, right? Five, Am I understanding five. it correctly? The other article said five times. These are like stats from a couple oh. different years. I'm just, yeah. Full disclosure, just doing some various internet searches over here. Because, no. yeah, it's like things that are known, but I like to see those like hard numbers. Yeah. I mean, the the one thing that I did look up before we did this, too, is that the U.S. makes up 4.4% of the world's population and yet it houses 22% of the world's incarcerated population. So out of the entire world, we house 22% of the entirety of the world's incarcerated population, but only make up 4.4% of the population. Um, nothing like a corporatocracy to really, really incentivize just putting people behind bars. Yeah, it's also just, like, in the U.S., like, you know, calling the police and, like, just having a carceral state is so normalized. Like, people call the police on their neighbors for shit, which I think is so – I think it's so fucked up, people that call the police on their neighbors. Um, It happened to me when I was living in D.C. And, like, I lived in a neighborhood of, like, townhouses. Everyone had a yard. Everyone had, like, summer barbecues and stuff. And – um we were having a like backyard party and there were like, at this point though, there were like five people in my backyard. Like it was nothing crazy. Um, and the cops like pulled up out back and they came up to us and like asked for who lived there and like had this conversation with us. But like, you know, then they just left cause it was like five, like, you know, white college students sitting in a backyard. But like a call like that can be obviously so dangerous to people of color. And like, that's just such a hostile thing to do. Right. And it's just, like, used as, you know, like, customer service. And just, like, people trusting, like, the cops are going to, like, keep you safe or, like, put in a noise complaint for your neighbors when, like, the cops are not, like, safe for most people. They uphold white supremacy. And that's, like, what they were put here to do, to, like, calm, you know, riots or protesters and, like, uphold capitalist patriarchy. For real. Yeah, so... That's my little rant. Don't call the cops on your neighbors just, fucking weirdos. Don't, just don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Or like on, like, you know, don't call the cops, but like on your neighbor, go fucking knock on their door. What's wrong with you? Anyway, that gets me heated. No, I mean, it, as it should. It's some fucked up bullshit. So um, I'm going to read a little bit from the intro of this book called Feminist Weed Farmer. It is by... Madrone Stewart, um, who is a woman of color. And most of the book is just like kind of tips about growing cannabis. But in the intro, she talks about like why it's really important um, for women and queer people and people of color, like to have the power to grow your own. Mm -hmm. So um, let's see. 
For women, the experience of expanded consciousness, insight, and stimulated creativity can be profoundly feminist. This altered state of consciousness can also help us to see oppressive cultural practices more clearly, as well as the process of challenging those practices. Perhaps most importantly, cannabis can help women develop a vision for ourselves and our society beyond these unjust practices. I believe that in order to consume cannabis with integrity, we must derive our plant medicine from ethically responsible sources. The current cannabis market, which is a blend of black market dealers and corporate controlled dispensaries, is completely market driven and is not in line with feminist, environmentalist, or social justice values. Unfortunately, there is no reliable way for consumers to know where and how your medicine was produced, whether you buy it from a dispensary or a friend. Your medicine could have been grown in a warehouse and coated in pesticides sprayed by someone who was paid $10 an hour, or it might have been organic grown under the sun by a commune of radical queer folks of color. However, because of the nature of the industry, there's no way for you to know anything about how your cannabis was produced. Therefore, I want to encourage all consumers, especially women, queer folks, and people of color who are so excluded from the cannabis industry to consider growing your own plant medicine in line with your principles. So a lot of her stuff is just like, here's why you should grow cannabis, but I thought talking about like the market there was interesting yeah absolutely i like that a lot (laughs) i like that a lot (laughs) yeah she also talks a lot about and i've read this before in like some like psychedelic feminism theory but talking about um cannabis dmt shrooms lsd the other uh what are they called entheogenic plants um but like how those are good for you know expanding the mind and how like the criminalization of those drugs is also related to like the government not wanting that growth of thought and not wanting people to be able to like explore different um, views for society and especially how like those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of substances can be really healing for trauma and specifically for women and people of color and queer people. So, yeah. Okay. So um, one of the other things that, uh, we didn't talk about, but I remember when I heard about this was like, of course this happens is civil asset forfeitures where they go after like mm. the properties of, um, convicted, uh, drug dealers, for example, and they'll take like their cash, their houses, their cars, whatever, and sort of use that to, uh, you know, fund this, well, fund the carceral state. Basically it's what they do with it. Um, but I'll, you know, of course with anything with, the cops in this country and anything in this country, it's completely corrupted. And they end up just stealing from people who are just even suspected um, of maybe using or having drugs. Like there's no real incentive for the state to get rid of these drug laws. Like they only benefit from them completely, like financially uh, and control of a very particular population. Like the incentive is not on them. There's no, there's no way we're going to, you know, convince them that, that it needs to be another way there, there really does need to be a mass movement around this and it's growing and I'm very happy about that. Um, yeah. and I also wanted to read something. I didn't know what the mandatory prison sentences were for mm-hmm. drugs. Um, but apparently for, so there's a list of like all the different schedules of drugs, the ones that are like very, very dangerous and deadly, things like heroin, uh, crack cocaine, stuff like that, meth. And then there's like weed, mushrooms, whatever. It's not going to kill you, but it's still considered a, it's still an illegal uh, narcotic. So like crack cocaine, uh, 28 grams of it will get you a mandatory automatic five years, 28 grams, which is like the amount of beans they'll put in your large cup of coffee. 
like that's that's how many like like a small little two tablespoons maybe and i wonder what the equivalent is like of just cocaine powder because that's some racist shit right there (laughs) i can tell you powder cocaine for 500 grams it's five years 500 grams you get five years heroin 100 grams five years uh lsd one gram five years marijuana a hundred thousand grams um I don't know what that is in ounces. Yeah. Uh, I can ask Siri. I know. Um, yeah. So there's like these minimum automatically five years in prison. Like you haven't even gone to court yet. And this is like what you're expected to get as a sentence to go to jail. And it's 10 years. Like obviously if you have more, it's I think 10 times is it's 10 times each of these, like you'll get an extra five years. So like instead of, 500 grams, 5,000 grams, I'll get 10 years um, automatically without like anyone even talking to a judge or a lawyer yet. That's mm. just like mandatory minimum. Wow. It's insane. It's it's so punitive for something so not worth that much punishment. I just feel like, you know, not to mention we know like in terms of usage, um, people across races use drugs similarly. Um and we know that they're not penalized similarly for this. So it is an issue of, of race, um, not just like of how ridiculous these minimum sentencing are as well. Yeah. And it's also like, yeah, we're just very quick to like just punish for drugs versus like have any, you know, solid form of like rehabilitation, therapy, um, like things that would actually help people if they do have a drug problem, which obviously not everyone being arrested on these charges does, but some do. And it's like, we just don't really have like good measures in place to actually like get to the root of like what's going on. It's just like, Oh, just put them in jail. And like, there's no, there's no uh, investment incentive for something like that. Like there's no profit to be made from healing people. Like there, there there was, (laughs) I was somebody, somebody I was talking to recently, Maybe I think there was an article written about this. There was a man who looked. There was a doctor who looked into this network of rehabilitation centers um, that would had like different levels of efficiency and like somewhere like like it, it was basically this company that had all these different hierarchies and levels of rehabilitation centers. So if you could go to like a really really nice one where they had all the staff, private rooms, all your meals. You know, you stay there for a couple of months. They'll bill your insurance. Um, your insurance pays for it, and and you know supposedly you leave rehabilitated. What they were doing apparently was taking in patients, and depending on what type of insurance they had, putting them in different levels and different like quality of care rehabilitation places. And in some cases, um, for the people who had the worst insurance and could pay the least, offered them this thing of like, oh hey, we've got this rehabilitation center, your your HMO or whatever, we'll pay for it. Just come down, and it really just ended up amounting to being nothing more than like a motel room where other drug dealers literally lived and where you could still continue to use and buy drugs. And this is like, it, it was a huge fraudulent thing. And it's, you know, our, it brings us kind of back to like how our healthcare system works. There's no incentive to help real drug abusers, people with actual problems, like at least for illegal drugs, you know, the legal drug pushers, they love it if you're hooked on their shit. But right. But once you move out of that profit model and and you're, you know, you've just become now a burden in society health wise, there's just no incentive for anybody to invest in helping you. And so the help isn't there. That's just how capitalism works. That's just how it screws us all over in every single way. 
Truer words have not been said. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there are lots more things that we can all learn about the ways in which um, drugs are related to our carceral state and how those affect um, particularly black and brown people um, more dispro- or disproportionately more. Um, but you know, we at least wanted to acknowledge that this is a big issue and that we need to be vigilant when we see, when we're starting to see all these states, uh, put legalization on the table. Um, I think we need to hold as much as we can people accountable to those, um, laws and decriminalizations, um, having healing pieces in, in those laws and in those narratives. Um, so we want to switch zones a little bit just for the, the tail end here. Um, so Zoe, uh, with the help of us, I don't want to like make her feel embarrassed. Uh, (laughs) I'm like hiding my face right now. (laughs) I knew, I knew something. I was like, she's going to hate this, but so she no. she wrote this manifesto, a season of the bitch manifesto. Again, you know, we contributed to it, but she really put these words together and I'm obsessed with it. Um Laura's my biggest fan. Well, okay, what I was telling them when before we started this <laughs> recording was like for me it feels like I've been doing this project for almost 2 years now. I try to describe it to people and after reading this I was like oh my God, I've just been describing this to people all wrong. And like Zoe just nailed it, in my opinion, to get like the spirit of what we do here. So um, yeah, like I'm just going to, there's, there's how many? Seven um, tenants, if you will, of the season of the bitch socialist feminist manifesto. Um and it's just, just like, no, sorry, of course, you know, we don't even need to get into it, but it's like, uh, <laughs> of course, love it. I love also the order that you did this in. Cause I love that it starts with no, sorry, which I think is like this really trademark thing. Um, and of course is like at the root of our understanding of the feminized experience. Um, two is representation matters. Um, which I have to say, uh, Zoe starts by saying, sorry, not sorry, but cis men are canceled. <laughs> um, which I just want to say, so like my, I had my mom like look it over for me cause she does editing as well. She's not an editor, but she has edited things. Um, but so she was like, I would maybe take out the like cis men are canceled part. Like it's kind of harsh. And I was like, that is the one thing I'm absolutely not changing. <laughs> sorry, mom. It's staying in. <laughs> Yeah. And she was like, okay, whatever. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. And I think that, you know, this is something we've heard time and time again from our listeners is something that like is really important to them that this can feel like a breath of fresh air to them and stuff like that too. Um, Number three is dismantle the hegemonic capitalist patriarchy, obviously. Number four is radicalizing is about simultaneously learning and unlearning and oh, how frustrating it can be. And I love this because I do think that we talk a lot about 
all these things that we've been taught and how to unlearn them, but also like giving space for people to grow and to learn and not have this like assumed knowledge um, or and not have judgment when people don't have the knowledge that you have right away. Um, so that is great. Number five is money is a catch 22. <laughs> this is where we're like, we would really love to spread the word. And to do that, <laughs> we, we need your pay, money. We need money. <laughs> and we also like get it. You know, we're all suffering under capitalist hell. So um, number six is socialist feminism is the future. Nothing more to really explain there. And number seven is love you by. And I just love that it ends with love you by because... I do feel like we're like, for me, I don't know. I've been in this Emma Goldman reading group and um, I've been thinking a lot about the lineage specifically of radical women and thinking about Emma Goldman and then thinking about Asada Shakur and Angela Davis and thinking about how a lot of their speeches of these powerful women, they were like unabashedly like pro-love. Um, whether that meant like radical love for your friends, radical love in a romantic way, radical love like in a community-based way. And I think that there's so much power in taking back that narrative and take in having this, you know, idea of like strength being derived from love instead of like buying into whatever fucking bullshit patriarchal mainstream narrative that is like, when we think about showing emotion and showing empathy as being somehow linked to weakness um, and thinking about those things as totally revolutionary. And so again, I think Zoe encapsulates like in her understanding of love you by is like, I think us choosing to honor that lineage also of these amazing radical women who have really paved the way for radical love and like solidarity in that way to be part of our radical politics. Laura, you said you know how to explain it, but that was such a good explanation. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It really was. Oh, well, nice. I'm kind of obsessed you know with why? this project. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I love you too, Alita. Oh, I love you guys. I love Aww. you. <laughs> it's just like, I, I truly, I don't know. I just feel very proud of the work that we're doing and reading the words that you wrote about it all, Zoe, makes me feel really proud and grateful to work with all of you. <laughs> me too. Yeah, and well, we can link to it. It's in the um, recent, episode, eh, recent issue of the Build Zine, but we can link to it in the description. Yes, definitely. Well, that's all I got. How about y'all? <laughs> Oh, I think we did it. Yep. We did it. We did it. Good job, and then, everybody. Yeah, and then tomorrow are um, the silly 420 episodes dropping on Patreon, and it uh, is never too late to sign up. It's never Speaking too late to money. sign up. <laughs> yeah. You should do it. You should give us $4.20 a month. Yes. Or more. Or more. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more. Yeah, of course. We're going to have more and more Patreon exclusive stuff too. We have a we have two D&D episodes coming up where we've partnered with Ogres and Organizing and it's going to be hilarious. I might have a whole bunch of material lined up for all of my Star Trek TNG theories that Laura doesn't yes. want to hear. Oh my god, no. I, 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 I the thing is hear. I do want to hear them. I want to hear them. I just don't okay, understand don't. them. <laughs> I love it. But 
Yeah, you know, y'all know where to find us. Uh, Season of the Bee on Instagram, Twitter, um, or on Facebook. You can go to seasonofthebee.com. We have live tickets for sale. There's only like, I think, uh, 10 or 9 left after today. Um, yeah, you should come for which, a live show in Philadelphia. That's which be fun. means by the time this comes out, it might even be less than that. So if you're listening to this and you're Ooh, like, wait a minute, yeah. I've been dragging my feet, you should go to seasonofthebee.com, click on live shows, click on the ticket thing, and get your tickets. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and give us your money on Patreon. Oh, that's it. And uh, have a have a fun holiday tomorrow. You know, if you're listening to this on four nineteen, yes, yeah. If you're listening on every other day, still have a good day today and tomorrow. You just have a good day with your life. Day. (laughs) You just have a good day. Hey, you right there listening. You have a good day. Okay, love you guys. Bye. Love you. Bye. Season of the Bitch. <laughs>